Thanks for joining episode six of A Fresh Perspective with Victoria. Just saying that out loud is wild to me. Um, I didn't think I would make it three episodes, let alone six. And I'm just so thankful for the support that I have and for everyone who's listened, whether you've only listened to one episode because it's what resonated with you or whether you've listened to all of them or some of them. I just really appreciate your support. It's definitely unexpected and it's not something that I really anticipated. So it's awesome. I appreciate it so much. So today's episode is something, it's just going to be a solo episode. I don't have any guests this week, but it is going to lead up to what I hope will be one of the most enlightening episodes coming up. I really hope so. But so this week, I just wanted to sit down and kind of think out loud while hopefully maybe something I say helps somebody or resonates with them or makes them feel like they're not alone in what they're feeling. That's super important to me is having a support system, whether or not it's people that have been through what you've been through or people that are just there for you. Sometimes that's all you need, you know? Today, I just really kind of want to talk about anxiety and depression. Not only are these two things mental illnesses that affect so many people in our lives, but there are two things that I don't think we talk about enough. And I think that the conversation is getting better now the time has gone on and it's 2019 and it seems like people are a little bit more open about talking about their feelings and not hiding their feelings. But at the end of the day, I still feel as if there's people in my own life that don't want to talk about it. And that's fine. I'm not here to tell anybody, you know, we have to talk about it and you have to be open and you need to share I'm just a little bit of an oversharer, so that's my problem. Not everybody else is built that same way, which is totally fine. But I just want to talk about it mainly because it's not something that, unless you're super close with me, you would know that I have dealt with it on my own. So I I don't really remember the first time that I felt depressed or that I had kind of an anxiety attack. I think when I was younger, my anxiety and my nerves about being social, I have a lot of social anxiety, I think that it was described by parents and teachers and, you know, adults as just being shy, which isn't the same thing as we now know, I think a few years later, that yes, you can be introverted, but having full-on anxiety attacks as a child or even as an adult about situations where you're getting ready to go either meet new people or you're going, you know, somewhere where you don't know anybody and who are you going to sit with? And, you know, there's just all these thoughts that run through your head and you have anxiety. And so sometimes it'll even prevent you from going. And that's kind of how my anxiety surfaced. I want to say in college is the, if I got super anxious, whether it was about like starting a new semester of school or when I joined a sorority, like there were 
always certain situations that I was going to step in and I didn't know anybody. And there were plenty of times that my anxiety just got the best of me. So I would turn my car around. I mean, in fact, it actually just happened to me a couple of days ago. I was driving to Walmart because I was going to go pick up some stuff because I'm trying to budget. Haley's helping me learn how to budget. But so I went to Walmart because I was going to go pick some stuff up and I got so overwhelmed by the parking situation that I just turned around and went home. So I went like 15, 20 minutes out of my way to go somewhere, got overwhelmed by parking and just left and came home. And so that's what my social anxiety looks like is I get so caught up in my head about who's going to be there. What are they going to say? Am I going to look stupid for being here? Are they going to question why I'm here? Where am I going to sit? Where am I going to stand? Is there like there a whole bunch of just questions run through my head before I'm even in the event or in the setting that I will just leave. And so that's definitely something that I think I've always suffered from. I do remember being a child and being anxious and crying on the first day of school every year. I want to say until maybe sixth or seventh grade, like way beyond what everybody else is upset about it. And so I, for sure, that's like ingrained in my memory And then I would always, like, go to the nurse's office sick, in quotes, and, like, my stomach hurt, so my grandma or someone would have to come pick me up. And they were always, always talking about how I was such a faker. But I think that's just, I mean, I'm eight years old, and I don't know how to express that, like, I'm not comfortable being here. Being in this classroom with 20 other kids is giving me so much anxiety, And I think that I kind of played into it as I grew up. I was okay with being, you know, the shy friend or the friend that's in the background. And I've always had, I mean, my best friends have always had big personalities. And that's probably because I don't really. And so I've always been okay with being in the background. That's never been something that I'm ashamed of I my best friends even just close friends they all have big personalities and like they're all more outgoing I would say that I also have a big personality it just takes me a while to show it but so I would say the two kind of phases of my anxiety were like when I was in elementary school and so that was anxiety about just being in a foreign place you know first day of school like not knowing anybody really and not having my parents, you know, whatever the case may be. And then the second more, like, what I still have every now and then, it would just be my social anxiety as an adult. So in college, it kind of started, and it's definitely kind of stayed right below the surface for as long as I can remember. There's certain times that it's uh, social anxiety where I don't want to leave my house, which is also borderline depression. Uh, And then there's social anxiety where I get where I'm supposed to be and then I just turn around. And then there's this also social anxiety that I just really go into like a panic attack right before we're about to leave. And so I'll let little things bother me, but I'll react to those little things massively. So, for instance, like, I can think of a couple of times that I've been super 
nervous about where I'm going and so I'll freak out about my outfit or my hair not being perfect or just something like that and I'll nitpick at it and I'll just tell myself well I can't go because I don't look good and that's obviously not true and then a a super recent uh panic attack that I do remember having was fairly recently after me and my roommate moved in together this year And we were going to go somewhere and I knew someone was going to be there that I didn't really want to be around for more than one reason. But because I knew they were going to be there, I started to panic and I started to freak out. And I was literally in my bedroom, actually my bathroom, it's connected to my bedroom, just crying on the floor because I couldn't even imagine a situation where I was going to see this person and feel okay. And that was terrifying. And, you know, I had never experienced something like that. I know a lot of people, that's how their panic or anxiety attacks really appear is those types of like actual attacks where they can't breathe and they, you know, they're crying or whatever the case may be. And so it was... It was really scary having never experienced something like that before, but I have done a ton of research on, not research, but I've just read a bunch of articles about what to do when you're having an anxiety attack, and so I did that kind of trick where, like, you look around where you are and you focus on a couple of things that you can touch, a couple of things that you can smell, like, you just really focus on the objects around you to try to, like, trick your brain out of this like panic mode that it's gone into. I'm not an expert at this, so I'm probably not even explaining anything right, but that's what I did. (laughs) I just looked around my room to focus on some stuff. I've never been diagnosed with depression. I think I've felt what leads to depression. I wouldn't say that I've ever felt 100% depressed. I have witnessed a parent who was diagnosed depressed and what I felt I don't think was ever even close to what my parent felt. But that being said, just the overwhelming feelings of, it's not just sadness, it's this feeling of it's never going to get better. And that can be related to a lot of things. You know, I think your relationship status can sometimes be like kind of the triggering factor for some people. I think job and money stuff can be a trigger for other people. I think there can be actual like foreign triggers like alcohol that kind of triggers this feelings of like sadness and just feeling kind of low and not being able to kind of pick yourself up out of it. I definitely, I mean, I... Like I said, I've never been diagnosed depressed, but when I moved back from Idaho to San Diego in 2017, I felt like I was depressed. I had just, you know, spent three months trying to relocate to Idaho to where my best friend Leah was and wanted to kind of just kind of start over there because San Diego wasn't fun for me anymore. It wasn't a good place. It kind of just had bad memories. And so I tried to escape them by going to Idaho, which was obviously not 
the best idea. It's not the wisest. You should never run away from your problems. But so I was trying to make it work in Idaho. It just wasn't working for a couple of reasons, but the main reason being my furniture never got delivered. So I was living in a two-bedroom, two-bath, like two-story townhouse. I just sounded Canadian. I don't know why I said townhouse. (laughs) I was living in a two-story, two-bedroom, two-bath townhome by myself in Idaho Falls with no furniture. I literally was sleeping. I slept on an air mattress. I had to buy two when I was out there. I then also would sometimes stay at Leah and Rob's house when, like, I didn't want to feel like I was intruding on their lives. But so after three months there with no furniture, I kind of just decided I was going to move back. But there were implications with that. I was leaving my best friend in Idaho, and we were kind of our only support system. Her her in-laws were there, like her husband's parents and siblings and everything but it wasn't the same as you know we both grew up in San Diego this is where all of our friends are this is where the majority of our family families are but in Idaho they really only had each other and then his family and so it just it was a really hard decision because I didn't want to disappoint her It was just hard because, and I never at the time put myself in her shoes of her feeling kind of the exact same way that I was of like, I don't know anybody here. This place is kind of foreign to me. There's not really a lot to do. So it was definitely interesting, but I am, I think looking back now, I think it's kind of better. (laughs) I mean, obviously, because I ended up back in San Diego and she's nearby now too, But I think it ended up better that I came back when I did because then they also found out they were having a baby. And so I think they got to just really experience that together. And so I tried to always kind of find the positive and everything of I think that that was important to them as a couple. And if I had been there, I definitely would have been overstepping my boundaries, even if neither of them would ever say that to me. (laughs) But... So when I came back from Idaho, that's when I really felt down, like it's never going to get any better, like I'm never going to find a job that pays me enough to live in San Diego, which is still an ordeal, but I decided to go on medication, and it was mainly for anxiety, but I mean, most medications like that work on, will work on both. But so I started taking this medication and I am a hundred percent do what you got to do. So I'm a hundred percent for people going to therapy. I actually believe that everybody, people who are single, people who are in relationships, people who, you know, are open about their anxiety or other, you know, conditions that maybe they're living with and people that are more private about it. I think everyone would benefit from therapy. I think therapy is just the best way to be able to become a better person. And that's not to say that I think anybody is a bad person, but I think there's always an opportunity to learn how to be kinder, to learn how to be more patient, to learn how to be more understanding. And 
uh, emotionally mature enough to understand that not everybody's going to react the same way you do. Not everybody's going to behave the same way you do or care about the same things that you do to the extent that you care about them. And I think therapy will help immensely with all of that. And I also think it's helpful to talk to somebody who's completely unbiased because, I mean, usually you're telling one of two people. You're telling your best friend who is usually just going to side with you no matter what because they're loyal or you are going to tell like a parent or a relative who is probably just going to tell you the cold hard truth that you don't want to hear and so you ignore it anyways. But so I think going to a therapist as an unbiased, like third party, I think is just a solution for many situations. I also am 100% being medicated or taking medication if that's what you want to do. I obviously don't overuse whatever medication you're being given, but I also... I'm 100% both those things. So if you want to try either, if you want to do both, that's awesome. However, I think there's a couple of other things that you can try, such as like journaling or just doing other things besides spending time on social media. I think that will also help. So I'm 100% both. However, I do believe that therapy should be tried first, just because I think that there are a lot of misuses of medication and people that stay on it permanently when they don't necessarily need to. And so I think that's definitely a problem. And I speak from not experience in like taking it longer than I needed to, but I speak from when I was going to, I was going to therapy and I was taking medication at the same time. I felt like an emotionless robot when I was on that medication. I could not even cry when it was appropriate to cry. So like if somebody was dying in front of me or something terrible was happening right by me, I wouldn't have been able to express my emotion. And that's when I realized like I need to find another way for me to deal with this because I don't want to numb it all. I don't. I don't want to not feel anything. I just want to be able to handle certain situations or triggers, again, that word, but triggers that will help me in the long run without relying on medication. And so that's when I really started going to therapy more religiously. I took myself off of the medication. Well, actually, I called the nurse and asked, and she said it was fine to just, like, I didn't need nothing specific needed to happen. And so I took, uh, stopped taking the medication and then I really upped my game in therapy. I was going, I think I went up to once a week, which really helped and eventually trickled down. So I'm not going that frequent anymore, but I think it's definitely a great resource for whatever is going on. I think it can really help people grow and really hone on um, certain things that may cause them to react negatively or poorly. But I also learned from going to therapy a couple of different like methods to try at home. They always call it your homework. And so one of them has always been journaling, which I've done since I was a child. So that one is always easy, highly recommended. You can get all your feelings out 
without having to click send on social media or post or whatever whatever website you might be on. And it also kind of is just like a stress reliever. Like you just sit and write for like 15, 20 minutes and you'll feel better. The most recent thing that I have been tasked with doing because I've been super stressed out about finances and kind of just the future in general, like kind of having this existential crisis of what is the point? What am I supposed to do here? And so my during a recent therapy session, my therapist said to wake up every day and say three things that you're grateful for, you know? And I my response at first was, why are you making me do this? Because I'm not saying that I'm not grateful. I'm just saying that I get stressed out, that this situation is stressing me out, that I don't understand what the point is. I don't get it. When am I going to find out? Like, that's the crisis that's going on inside my head. And she had to re-explain to me, like, but the more you focus on the good, the less you're going to worry about all that bad stuff and that's going on in the back of your head. And so I started doing that and I try to do three unique things every day. I've, like reused a couple here and there because it's really hard before like 7 a.m. to think about three things that you're grateful or like thankful for in your life. So that's also really helped me as well. And I just, I don't know, I just kind of wanted to do this because I think that it's super, super important because none of us really know what's going on in anybody else's life. And it's important to kind of learn these things about each other so that way we can understand who we are today because chances are most of the people you're friends with or associated with these nowadays are not people that you've known since you were little. So you don't remember those like things that happen. For instance, if I were to sit here and talk with somebody who I was best friends with in elementary and middle school, I could probably list off the five things that probably contributed them to having anxiety or depression or OCD or certain things like that. But, you know, most of the time now our friends we've known for after high school days. So it's it's a little bit harder because not as much stuff happens as visibly, I think, once you're older. I definitely just want to like always, always remember to take everything in the in social media in the media I guess in general with a grain of salt you know everybody nobody's life is perfect and everyone has their own things that they're working through so it's it's important to remember that it's important to not look at social media as if it's you know 100% true and 100% valid I think it's the highlight reel so we're seeing all the good and we're not seeing any of the bad or the ugly So we see, you know, people who love their job every single day of the week. We see moms who have perfect children who behave and listen and help her do things around the house, you know. So we we just have to always keep that in mind and to not, I believe I was reading an article that's saying that there's like a new disorder that they've started researching because of social media and it's related to obsessive compulsive disorder except it's called obsessive comparison disorder and it's so common in millennials so it's it's a fairly new research so I 
can't say anything's definitive yet, but it basically is just saying that social media is allowing millennials or it's kind of encouraging millennials to to compare themselves with these people that are online. So you have your average 15 or 16 year old in high school comparing themselves to Instagram influencers or Instagram models and everything. And so it's just, it's too much for them. And so I just hope that eventually there, you know, there's different ways to go about having stuff like that posted. I mean, the power of social media and limiting that use. I mean, I know now if you have an iPhone, like you can track how much time you're spending on your phone and where that time is like spent, which is really eye-opening because you can see how much time you waste on social media. And it's, I always go through phases where I will like delete my, my apps from my phone or I'll like uh, temporarily deactivate them just so that way I can't even log into them. But then I still find myself three months later, usually that's the longest I can go, craving it and like needing to get back on Facebook or needing to get back on Instagram. And I don't like that that power, I don't like that I've given these apps and these kind of algorithms my total attention. And like, I don't, it's not healthy at all. I want to kind of end this episode with some statistics, some facts about depression and anxiety, just to help make it more relatable because I think it is something that is relatable. I think it's something that, you know, if you're not experiencing it, if you haven't experienced it, you know someone who has. And so again, the only way to kind of destigmatize it to make it something that younger generations are more open to talk about is for us to talk about it and to share our stories. Major depressive disorder affects approximately 17.3 million American adults. This is about 7.1% of the U.S. population. Major depressive disorder is more prevalent in women than in men. That's not surprising. And adults with a depressive disorder or symptom have 64% greater risk of developing coronary artery disease. So that's actually something I experienced recently. My mom earlier this year had a heart attack, as some of you may know. Um, And so like depression, anxiety runs in our family. So it's kind of crazy that that's actually my mom is actually a part of that statistic. So I want to talk a little bit about women in depression because I do think that, I mean, the facts are the facts. It affects women more than it does men. And I think part of that definitely has to do with childbirth. I think it has to be with the parent who carries the baby and delivers it and then, you know, is primarily responsible for raising it. It's just very interesting. I definitely think that postpartum is a big factor in why that number is higher for women than it is for men. So women are almost twice as likely as men to have had depression. And so postpartum mood changes can, basically they range from what's called the blues immediately following childbirth. And then in some women, they turn into an episode of major depression So it's not even just 
uh, postpartum, it's, it can actually turn into severe major depression. And what's interesting is that there's studies that suggest that women who experience major depression after childbirth very often have had prior depressive episodes, even though they may not have been diagnosed. And then this is kind of just an interesting fact regarding how depression impacts the economy. Depression contributes $44 billion a year in lost productivity alone for employers. So what that means is that there's employees who are not coming into work, they are not doing their job, so they're not hitting their productivity requirements or their goals. And so their employers, their companies are losing money. And that is because most likely there's not a good balance at work. I, 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 it'd be interesting to see the correlation there, like of those companies that are losing all of that money and every year, like their productivity money is what is their PTO or sick time look like? Do they you know, offer it, I think that'd be interesting to find out as well, because I think that that's probably related. So next I want to talk about anxiety disorders, because I think there's a lot of misunderstandings about them. So they're actually the most common mental illness in the United States. They affect 40 million adults ages 18 and older, which is 18.1% of the population. So rewinding really quick, depression affects 17.3 million adults, which is only 7.1%. So anxiety disorders affect double the amount that depression does, which is insane because I don't remember talking about anxiety until five years ago, really, is what I, I mean, I had to have been like right or maybe longer than that. I just thought I was a lot younger than I actually am. The thing that I find interesting about anxiety disorders is that they're super treatable. So I mentioned uh, therapy and medication. There's probably other things out there that I don't really know about, more holistic ones if you want to do that too. But so it's one of the most treatable disorders or types of disorders, but only 36, almost 37% of people receive treatment. So again, that tells us that people are not going to the doctor. They're not talking about it. They're not having these open conversations. And part of it might be, I think people with anxiety disorders, I think there's people who have anxiety disorders who are hypochondriacs. And I think that that is why a lot of people do not go to the doctors is because A, they're scared they have everything or they're scared of doctors. Like those are the only two types of people I think that don't go to doctors or the third, which I should have said this to begin with people that don't have insurance because that's, you know, it's not a thing in the United States. Not everybody has it. So just interesting that it's super treatable. There's plenty of options, but not even half of the people that are diagnosed with anxiety are receiving treatment. One thing about anxiety disorders, and probably true about depression, although I didn't come across that information in my research, is that anxiety disorders, they develop from multiple factors. So there's a couple of different risk factors. They include genetics, your brain chemistry, your personality, and life events, which is not too surprising that any of those four things would 
contribute to an anxiety disorder developing. So there's a bunch of different types of anxiety disorders. So the first one that I want to talk about is social anxiety disorder because that's what I have. And so this affects 15 million adults. It's a little less than 17% of the U.S. population. It's equally common among men and women. The thing I find most interesting about this specific disorder is that it typically begins around age 13, which is extremely young, but very close. I mean, I think I had mine even younger than that, but that's just the average is 13. You know, it's that preteen, early teen phase where everybody's awkward, everything is awkward, you don't want to talk about anything with anybody. 36% of people who have social anxiety disorder report experiencing symptoms for 10 years or more before seeking help. Again, I think that goes back to our three groups of people that don't go to the doctor. We have our hypochondriacs who think they have everything because they WebMD it and so they don't need to go to the doctor. Your group of people who are so terrified of the doctor that they would literally rather probably do anything than go to the doctor. And then you have your third group of people, which are people who don't have access to go see a doctor. I also don't think, at least when I graduated college and I got my first job, I don't think that like therapy or like anything like that was even a potential like doctor's visit that could be covered. Like I think it was all out of pocket. It might still be, but there are options for people who either can afford it or like need to pay like reduced amounts. There's general anxiety disorder, which affects 3.1% of the population. There's panic disorder, which affects 2.7% of the U.S. population. We talked about social anxiety disorder, which affects 6.8%. There's phobias, which in my brain, I've never registered phobias as anxiety, but that's 100% what they are. And phobias, specific phobias, um, they affect 8.7% of the U.S. population, and they actually start the early, like some of the earliest anxiety disorders are phobias, and they start on average at seven years old. So that's, you know, you think back when you're little, what are the things that you're scared of? You're You're scared of the dark, you're scared of spiders, you're scared of clowns, like there's all these different things. If you're like me, you have a phobia that is not super common and I'm actually super embarrassed by and I've spent years trying to not be not let this phobia affect me as much as it does unfortunately I'm never I've never accomplished that but you know there's just certain things that when you're younger kind of just continue but moving on so there's uh, obsessive compulsive disorder which actually affects one percent of the population which is crazy, but it starts young as well. It starts when your teenager is around 14 years old. On average, there's post-traumatic stress disorder, which affects 3.5% of the U.S. population. Um, Actually, men, there are certain, actually, I won't get into that, but, you know, sexual assault. There's post-traumatic stress disorder, which is most likely triggered by some sort of sexual assault in some way. And of 
people, of Americans that are sexually assaulted, it affects more men than it does women. It affects 65% of men versus only 45. I say only as if that's not a big number. That's still a ginormous number, but it is 20, nearly 20% less than the number of men that it affects or that it um, causes or you know contributes to their PTSD. There's major depressive disorder, which affects 6.7% of the U.S. population. It uh, doesn't really have a specific age that it starts, but it's very common for women in their mid-30s to experience it more. And I think there's a correlation. I mean, not there's a correlation, but I, I, I see it happening more often because of my friends who were all as much as we want to deny it, approaching 30. And I think that all of us kind of have these moments of what the fuck am I doing with my life? You know, what is the point? I'm not financially stable. I'm not in a relationship. I'm in a relationship, but it stresses me out. I'm not where I want to be career-wise. I'm not where I want to be geographically. Like, I want to travel more. I want to make more money. Like, there's all these different things that are contributing And so I understand why major depressive disorder would affect women in their 30s more than it would men, because I see it myself happening. The whole point of me sharing my story and just these facts and these statistics that I can find just by Googling uh, is just to kind of start the conversation to hopefully help someone realize that they are not alone, that it's way more common than we were told growing up or even than we're told today. And so it's definitely just super common or it's super important to remember that and to remember that not everybody's anxiety and depression looks the same way. So I think that that's one thing that people get frustrated by is If I tell you I have anxiety and then I have an anxiety attack or something's upsetting me and I'm not reacting the way that you do, you may not think that my anxiety is valid. You may not understand that what I'm feeling is still anxiety to me, even if it's not maybe as heightened as yours or even if it's not caused by the same things. And I think that's the same for depression is like I've, you know, reiterated multiple times, I've actually never been diagnosed as depressed. I only have what I saw visually people in my family and people that I know go through. And so I've kind of made the connection and I've done research and I've assumed that there's been times that I have been depressed, but again, I don't know, but my depression may not look like everybody else's. And so it's important to not discredit people And the way that they're feeling, even if you don't understand it, or even if it doesn't look like what you would expect it to. And I think that's the biggest takeaway for me is by doing my research and by looking up, you know, before I decided to do an episode about this, was I looked up anxiety disorders and I didn't realize how many there were. And then just because my statistics really do kind of focus on the United States specifically, there's worldwide statistics. So according to the World Health Organization, almost 75% of people with mental disorders remain untreated in developing countries, and it leads to almost 1 million people taking their lives each year. Also, according to the World Health Organization, 1 in 13 people globally suffer from anxiety. While anxiety is 
or anxiety disorders, not just anxiety, but all these different disorders, are the most common mental disorders worldwide with specific phobia, major depressive disorder, and social phobia being the most common anxiety disorders. Globally, 1 in 13 people globally are dealing with this. Now, if that doesn't strike a chord in you, if that doesn't make you want to reach out to somebody, if that doesn't make you want to reach out to someone, if you are the person that has the anxiety or the depression or anything that you want to talk about, I, I think you're just not paying attention to it. I don't think, I think you might be put, you know, brushing it under the rug, just pretending you're going to deal with it later. But the number one thing is to just remember that There are people out there who know what you're going through. There's support systems. It doesn't necessarily have to be friends or family or anyone that you even know personally. Like I said, it could be a therapist. I would never want anyone to feel the way that I felt before I started seeking the help through therapy and medication. I think think it's very lonely. I think that dealing with any kind of health, you know, issue or mental health issue or anything like that, I think it's very lonely. And I think that by not reaching out to people, you're delaying the kind of recovery process that can happen. And so I just want to kind of do a PSA to remember to check in on people to, I mean, there's, there's plenty of friendships that I can think of off of the top of my head that just kind of ended. And those people most of them were dealing with their own stuff and I never reached back out to them. And maybe part of it was because I didn't know how I wasn't capable of handling what they were going through or talking about it with them at the time. And I think also maybe part of it was just not wanting to give it life, you know, not wanting to talk about it because then that would make it real. But the, the stuff is real. It's it's just so important, and I'm not going to be PC here for a second, and so I'm trying to, but I just I don't think I'm going to be able to. So I want to talk. I want to figure out or just do more research or talk in general about mental health issues being... racial issues and I think that that would be interesting to explore but that's a topic for another day well I want to thank you for joining me this week I know I rambled a lot I spit a lot of facts at you that you may or may not care about but I hope that you do I hope that you listen and I hope that some part of what I said resonated with you this topic I wasn't fully prepared to talk about it by myself, but I think that it's a great introduction to future podcast episodes where I talk with other people and hopefully have them share their experiences if they're open to it. Because I think that sharing our stories, storytelling in general, I think it just kind of bridges these gaps of indifference and of the lack of empathy that I see happening in today's today's society. So I really hope that, you know, I'm able to continue this conversation. Thank you guys for joining me. Until next time.
Here I am, out dancing and sipping my drink. Then I look over my shoulder, and there's anxiety. Walking through the door like an ex I don't want to see, with a big grin ready to greet me. Go away, I think. All you do is cause me pain, yet my voice goes silent before I can say the words. So here I am, sitting in the booth waiting for anxiety to leave a party they were never invited to. That's a poem written by Janae Cecilia.